daughter has been poisoned with lead for months. Hundreds of thousands of people in Toledo, Ohio, without water now for a second day. Wildfires are scorching the West Coast. The whole town was out of water. The showers, cooking food, the children brushing their teeth. You know, simple things we take for granted. That's another hiccup that we are facing, money. It's a once-in-a-generation investment in America. We'll create millions of jobs. It's bold, yes, and we can get it done. From today's bills to tomorrow's jobs, we're looking for the government at work in our tap water, light switches, bridges, and broadband. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics Summer Series, Infrastructure in Real Life. Thank you so much for joining us for Pantsy Politics Summer Series on Infrastructure. We are delighted to be here with you. If you don't know who we are, uh, we are Sarah and Beth. We sit down together twice every week as citizens to process the news. We do something a little different in July, though, where we step back and work for most of the year preparing to discuss one particular topic. And this year, that topic is infrastructure. In this summer series, we're tackling the past, present, and future of what we traditionally think of when we think of infrastructure, roads, bridges, the electrical grid, as well as pushing ourselves to see emerging infrastructure like broadband and childcare more clearly. Now, you may have heard that there is a massive new infrastructure plan before Congress, but this series isn't really about the politics of that plan. It's about how we interact with infrastructure as citizens. It's about getting curious about the infrastructure all around us and what it takes to build, maintain, and modernize that infrastructure. And it's about seeing the government at work when you pass a fire hydrant or you drive over a bridge or you turn on your faucet. Thinking about who fixes the potholes and how and why the light switch is reliable. We have interviewed approximately nine zillion, as our team put it, experts and academics all through the spring to get their perspectives on the state of American infrastructure, how it works, where it isn't working, and to hear their hopes for the future. So you're going to hear their voices throughout the series. We're starting today with water, then making our way through electricity, transportation, broadband, and childcare. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Traditionally, financial planning advice is either only for those who are already wealthy or salespeople calling themselves financial advisors who say they'll give you free financial advice but really just sell products to earn commissions. 
Fearless Finance takes a dramatic departure from either of those traditional models. Their entire business is built on making financial advice accessible and affordable because we know that financial literacy, stress reduction, and financial security are critical to overall well-being. I'm a little bit obsessed with Elizabeth, our Fearless Finance Advisor. I've had an array of advisors in the past who answered questions like, should we be spending less on this with evasive answers like, it depends on your priorities. Not Elizabeth. She answers with actually helpful guidelines. You're spending more than the average family of five, or I'd like to see this increase by 6%. Uh, thank you. This is Fearless Finance's mission, to make advice affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually and they charge you by the hour. You only pay for the time you use down to a quarter hour. Their planners meet with you where you are on your financial journey, no judgment. Visit fearlessfinance.com today. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit and you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use the code pantsuit. That's fearlessfinance.com and use code pantsuit for $50 off your first planning meeting. I hope you guys don't mind to time travel back with me about a year. I was in the process of resigning myself to the idea that part of middle age for me might mean that my hair was going to slowly turn to straw and fall out of my head. Drama aside, we all know that your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. I have tried other custom beauty products and just found that they kind of make my hair worse. But ever since I switched to a custom hair routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair, yes, but beyond that too. I feel like I don't have to blow dry my hair anymore in order for it to look good because it's stronger, fuller, softer, and just looks nicer. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made to order model. My custom shampoo and conditioner, for example, were formulated to improve the smoothness and volume of my hair. And I really see after months of using my custom formula and tweaking it with the review and refine tool for this season that I have nice looking hair all year long. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So go get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. of what constitutes infrastructure really has been a heated political debate lately. So let's talk about how we are going to use that term on this series. So what is infrastructure? If America's global economic success was built by its workers, then infrastructure is the foundation upon which that work was performed. It was the utilities that allowed us to live together and work together. It was the public education system that allowed us to educate our workers. It was the roads and bridges that allowed us to transport goods and ourselves across the country. We are a big country, after all. And when we do big things together, we require a lot of support. Infrastructure is that support. One of the reasons this is so relevant to your real life is because we pay for this infrastructure and we do want to put real numbers on what we're talking about. So we've done a listener survey and thanks to all of you who participated that we'll reference throughout this series. We heard from people all over the country and we'll be sharing those results with you as we go. 
For today, as we talk about water, we heard from our listeners that most people are paying between $50 and $150 a month for water. But those costs can really vary, especially in the summer, if you're watering your lawn or washing your car and your usage goes way up. We have people reporting between two and $300 a month for those peak months. But just think about this, $50 to $150 a month or even to $300 a month for the most essential thing we need to live our lives as we do. It's pretty remarkable. But really, we want to make that number, like the individual cost, just a piece of the conversation because we really don't want to think about infrastructure merely as consumers. But we really also want to talk about it, think about it, push ourselves to see infrastructure from the perspective as citizens. After all, access to reliable, safe water makes an enormous difference in our economy and in our public health, in our lives. Three in 10 people worldwide do not have that access. Millions of people still have to walk at least 30 minutes a day to carry water to their homes across the world. When clean water isn't reliable and constantly available, diseases proliferate, opportunities diminish, and people lose their lives. So as we think about that definition of infrastructure as the support upon which we flourish as a country, we want to also think about each component of infrastructure. We take a lot of our infrastructure for granted, and it's much more complex than meets the eye. So when we say water, what exactly do we mean? My name is Joseph Kane, and I'm Associate Fellow at the Brookings Institution. As I define it, water infrastructure includes drinking water infrastructure. It includes wastewater infrastructure, sort of our toilets and, <laughs> and all that, and then stormwater infrastructure. So whenever it rains outside and you see water going into different sewers or drains, that's part of water infrastructure too. So it's the combination of all of these different physical facilities, our pipes, our treatment plants, our sewers that all make up this network that's in many places invisible or buried. It's sort of out of sight, out of mind until until there is uh, a leak or there's a water main break or, you know, it's an essential service that we take for granted in, in many cases. So let's think a little bit about where we've been with water throughout our history. Controlling water supply in some form or fashion has been one of the early hallmarks of infrastructure throughout the world. We saw early plumbing pipes made of baked clay and straw as early as 4000 BCE, and the Egyptians were using copper pipes as early as 2500 BCE. The Greeks mastered hot and cold water and invented shower technology. The Romans crafted what were then engineering marvels with their aqueducts, underground plumbing, and the first sewer network. Thank you, Greeks and Romans. I love showers and sewers. Um, Of course, indigenous people around the world were creating irrigation system for crops long before any European set foot in what is now America. Boston pioneered its first water system in the 1600s, and Philly worked to provide a safe water supply to its residents in the early 1800s. The White House got running water in 1833. Cities implementing water and plumbing systems throughout the 1800s really allowed those populations to grow exponentially. It is important to remember that throughout much of early American history in particular, enslaved people were the human infrastructure, carrying out waste or working pulley systems that moved water around a building. And that's true outside of America as well and something that we don't want to lose sight of. And then the industrial era and urbanization brought with them epidemics of waterborne diseases such as typhoid fever. 
water treatment technology came about in the early 1900s and drastically reduced these risks in populated areas. Then we saw the economic expansion that followed World War II create another water crisis because wastewater started to overwhelm the capacity of our rivers, lakes, and estuaries. So the second half of the 20th century saw a good deal of legislation passed to confront this crisis, and that includes the Clean Water Act of 1972. Before the Clean Water Act, the solution to pollution was dilution. Had you ever heard that before, Ben? (laughs) Yes, I have. We don't function under that rubric anymore. Thank goodness. I am grateful for it. I don't know if I could sleep if we did. Here, the head of my local sewer agency talks about this approach. John Hodges, and I'm the director of the Paducah-McCracken County Joint Sewer Agency. In the beginning, there were no sewage treatment plants. Now, a lot of people will think a sewage treatment plant is an old technology, and it's not. In the 50s and the 60s, or when sanitary sewers became prevalent. So in the beginning, when we were all deciding how to get rid of waste and rainwater, besides letting the rainwater sit in the ditch or digging a hole, your outhouse, they said, we're going we're gonna to come up with this piping system. And there were two ways they could do it. One way... They could have a separate piping system for your sanitary flow. So that way when you flush and you use your dishwasher and all of that, it goes through its own separate piping system. That's called a separate system. You also have urban drainage that you have to take care of. And they would have flooding issues back in the turn of the century or in the 30s or whatever. Well, you didn't have sewage treatment plants. You were already going to have to build a pipe to convey what you're flushing Why not make the pipe a little bit bigger and put your stormwater in the same pipe? This history is essential because the decisions made when our infrastructure was being built are still affecting communities across the country, including some of those decisions that were built on the foundation of the solution to pollution is dilution. And when we say communities, it's important to emphasize that water has always been highly localized. The water that comes through your tap Hose, sprinkler, shower is coming from a specific local source, not some national bank of water. And rights to access those sources have likely been and might still be hotly contested. Seven states entered into an agreement to access Lake Mead, the large reservoir formed by the Hoover Dam in Nevada. The Supreme Court recently ruled in a case between Florida and Georgia over access to the Chattahoochee River. So you're going to hear more about water rights from Dr. Crystal Tuli Cordova, who is the principal hydrologist for the Navajo Nation. And if you're wondering what a hydrologist is, we'll let Dr. Tuli Cordova tell you. A hydrologist is a person that studies water and it's all aspects of water when we think about it. Uh, everything from precipitation to surface water. So why does the Navajo Nation have a principal hydrologist and what are the unique challenges they faced as opposed to other parts of the country? The Navajo Nation spans across three states, Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah, and it's over 27,000 square miles. To be able to give a reference point, you know, it's similar in size to West Virginia or if people internationally uh, similar in size to Ireland. And the work that I do is really involves a number of aspects, including everything from technical work, you know, watershed studies, as well as water rights related work, and including now uh, the COVID-19 response for water access in the Navajo Nation. 
There's 30 to 40 percent, as our president has shared through different media outlets that do not have pipe water. And so in addition to not only studying the water by where is it going, how much is there, there's also an opportunity to be able to develop water so that people have more access to water and are able to not only have just any kind of water, but safe water that meets the drinking water quality standards in the United States. The challenges that we have are related to the spatial size of our area. And so it's including, you know, just over the large area trying to develop. Uh, Unlike more populated areas, there's very rural living. We have a sparse population throughout the Navajo Nation. But in addition to all those issues, we also have water quality issues associated with past uh, abandoned uranium mining, unremediated mines in the area. So have some issues with arsenic and uranium, while we also have issues with brackish water. And I guess the easiest way to put it might be really salty water uh, that needs to be able to have technologies like reverse osmosis or nanofiltration and other methods to try and clean up that water so that we can be able to use it. Desalination efforts, basically. Reverse osmosis and nanofiltration are processes we use to make water safe for drinking. An amazing thing about water is that it can't really get too dirty to clean with the technology we have available. Desalination removes salts and other minerals from water to make it suitable for drinking. With the technology we have today, we can make water so pure that we actually have to add some minerals back to make it taste good to us. So what does water infrastructure look like on the ground? Here is Dr. Tuli Cordova again talking about how this is applicable to communities across the country, but specifically the Navajo Nation. It's easy to just think like when I turn the faucet, the water should come on. And, you know, as someone who uses water, that's what you expect as a municipal payer for that water. Right. But what people don't understand is there's a lot to be able to get that water to come out of your faucet. So there's water lines. If you live in a very flat area, there's booster pump stations to move the water throughout a large area. There's storage tanks, depending on where you get your water from. Uh, There are different type of pumps that may be used. A lot of the Navajo Nation water uh, is from the ground. And so we have pumps bringing that water up to the surface, but with water rights, We resolve for a couple of areas, you know, the San Juan River, as well as the Utah Navajo water rights. We have the opportunity to provide sustainability in our water supply by diversifying it with surface water. So just thinking about all those aspects, the mechanical aspects, the hydraulic um, aspects of getting your water to where it is, there's a lot of infrastructure involved in that infrastructure. Although we would like to wish, like with the new car, right? If we don't do that oil change, we don't do those rotations, you will gradually see that infrastructure, what has been created to be able to break down. And the same is true when you have a vehicle. The same is also true when you use water lines and pumps on a daily basis. As our water infrastructure breaks down and as we try to build new infrastructure resilient to the challenges of the next century, we really have an opportunity. 
the water rights, the way they were divvied up and who was at the table when that occurred. Tribes were not at the table. Indigenous people were not at the table. And, you know, we used what we could from water. We never we never had the system of water rights that were set up as a natural user in the environment that we have. Uh, that's very different than the way water rights are set up through the states, through the federal government. I love that metaphor of taking care of the car and making sure that we're maintaining it as we're using it. And I also love how Dr. Tuli Cordova points out that the concept of water rights is a really different way of thinking about resources than where the Navajo Nation starts. And it's kind of a uniquely American property-centric approach to figuring out how to manage something that really is bigger than property can contain. You know, we have all the water on Earth that has ever been and that we will ever have. We can't really lose it, but we have to care for it, and we cannot keep it where we want it. And that Mm -hmm. challenge, I think, is really important to consider as we think about different communities sharing this resource that's vital for everyone. You know, one of the first books we picked for our book club was The Big Thirst, and it changed so much of my thinking about water. I mean, I I, I didn't understand that we had all the water we were going to have. I didn't understand that you can remove so much from water. I definitely didn't understand you had to add stuff back to make it taste like drinking water. And I think that book really taught me to see water less through the prism of property and even resources, but more you know, through the prism of life force, right? Like there's just no life on earth without water. And I think, you know, we are putting this infrastructure around something that is so big and so essential in ways that sometimes I just want to pat us on the shoulder and say like, oh, that's that's cute what you're trying to do there with water. <laughs> but we have to do something. We have to find some foundation upon which to rest. And I just hope that finding new ways to improve our infrastructure and adapt our infrastructure goes along with new and evolved ways of thinking about water and the role in our lives. Yeah, the key takeaway for me from The Big Thirst is to have an enormous amount of respect for water Mm -hmm. and to understand that what comes out of my faucet was cosmic molecules at one point and then dinosaur pee several times over and then snow on a mountain. And the Mm -hmm. fact that it gets to me in such pristine condition is nearly a miracle and that it can come, you know, through me and exist in generations to come in the same clean format. It's amazing. And so I do think as we try to manage water in practical terms for an ever-growing population, maintaining that sense of respect for water is really important. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. We use our phones for everything at this point, but did you know that you can use it for some sexy me time? Don't worry, your fantasies are safe with Dipsy. Just don't forget to use your headphones. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. 
Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library, a fantasy series with vampires, Greek gods, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy written stories to read. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time. Explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or even heat things up with a partner. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. My son Oliver is almost two. The desire for more hours in the day has never been more real for me in my life. An extra hour for reading, for sleeping, for working, for playing, I could use any of it. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to then make it a priority. Therapy can help you figure that out, help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. Just last week, my mom actually asked me about my experience with BetterHelp after hearing ads like this one for it. And I'm telling you what I told her. BetterHelp was the perfect solution for me in a time of my life when I had too many plates to juggle, but still very much needed to talk to someone about the experience of keeping all those plates in the air. BetterHelp made therapy easy and accessible right when those were qualities I needed most. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. You just fill out a very brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot pantsuit. paradox of infrastructure, especially with water, is that we are both talking about the philosophy of these great natural resources and the essential nature in our lives, and also the very pragmatic reality of how to bring it into our homes, our businesses, our local communities, and the complicated nature of that, the complicated nature of every level of oversight You see that so clearly with water. It's incredibly diverse. It's very segmented across local, state, and federal responsibilities. We have over 50,000 water utilities across the United States. Here's Joseph Kane again. It's highly varied depending on where you are, where if you're in California, water scarcity may be a bigger issue than, than if you're in the Great Lakes region where perhaps older infrastructure or lead pipes, right, might be a bigger concern. So this diversity and magnitude of needs all across the country, I think, speaks to the the local and state leadership we see on our water infrastructure. They're actually responsible for 95% of total public spending every year on water infrastructure. The federal government's only responsible for about 5% of our public uh, spending. As you can imagine, Upgrading and maintaining 50,000 diverse systems is an incredible challenge. Some of our pipes actually 
date to the Civil War. They're actually wooden. They're, they're not even metal <laughs> or plastic. We don't even know where some of our pipes are buried. And so when you can't measure or even know where your problems are, it makes it very difficult to determine where the solutions could be. And, and so the physical part of it is certainly a big challenge in, in just sort of the age and, and reliability of these systems. When we're talking about 50,000 systems, sometimes the best way to gain a perspective is to zoom in on one. And so when I was a commissioner, I was assigned to our local sewer board, one of those key pieces of our water infrastructure. And it was absolutely one of the most interesting things I did while in office. And I met one of my absolutely most favorite people, John Hodges, who is the director of the McCracken County Joint Sewer Agency. And so when we decided to talk about water, I knew that John was one of the first people we had to talk to. And our conversation centered on sewer utility structures in Paducah, but the structures he's talking about are similar for many public water, sewer, stormwater utilities across the country. And of course, it's important to point out that we're talking about sewer, but 20% of U.S. households use a septic system which means that they aren't connected to a large sewer system at all. They have tanks on their property that drain their waste into the ground and it filters down through the soil. It's a very normal way, pretty common, particularly in rural America, a way to manage waste that over 21 million households in the U.S. currently use. But here is John with the structure of our local sewer agency. The Joint Sewer Agency was, was formed in 1999. And where we're from, Paducah, in McCracken County, McCracken County had several small sewer districts. They were organized differently legally than the city district, which hampered their ability to expand sewers, hampered their ability to, I guess you could say, raise money and and keep money. So the city and the county leaders wanted to get together and combine all of the agencies into what they call a joint sewer agency. A lot of people in rural states have septic tanks and that's their primary disposal and then there are areas that have private systems that were done in the 50s and 60s so what we've been able to do since we've been formed is to do some consolidation work uh, do a lot of maintenance work on the system and then um, try to do uh, what we call uh, responsible expansion you know, to expand sewers out to areas that aren't sewered to spur economic development. And look, municipalities set up their own structures and there's a lot of diversity there. But the one consistency is that they are not free agents. There are many, many regulations at the federal level that apply to all these municipalities. Every rule is really established by the federal government. And here's what the federal government does. The federal government will come up with the Clean Water Act. And then it will say, okay, state of Kentucky, you are responsible for implementing the Clean Water Act. You are now our authority. And we're only going to intercede when we don't like what you're doing and your authority deal. And so the state primarily regulates us. They approve what we do. They approve our discharge permits and those things. But a lot of the language related to those permits are in the federal law. The states can all modify and do some changes and, and, and add. They can't subtract, but they can add. So from a compliance standpoint, primarily you're going to be working with your state folks. If you're working with the federal folks, you're either really large or you're in a lot of trouble. 
So there are levels of connection at the local, state, and federal level, but that's not where the interconnectedness ends. They're not necessarily going to regulate farming, where you do a lot of nitrogen and fertilizer and phosphorus. But hey, we can make the sanitary sewers get rid of their nitrogen and phosphorus. We're called a point source because we discharge through a pipe, you follow me, to the river. A farmer is not a point source because it just runs off and residents aren't a point source or whatever. But we're a point source. We have to apply for a permit to discharge. Much easier to regulate. Infrastructure is so interdependent. So our water and sewer are very dependent on electricity. If you have a power outage, you have sewer problems. If it's out of sight, it's out of mind. When these systems are managed well, we're not thinking about them. And we don't remember how important it is and how quickly a lack of prioritization to maintain and upgrade these systems leads us to a crisis. Like what we've seen famously in Flint, Michigan, we've seen it in Toledo. We saw in Texas how quickly when Mm -hmm. Texas had really extreme winter weather, the loss of electricity led to water fallout. Our nation's water pipes are 45 years old on average, including 10 million lead service lines. And most of those systems are managed on state or local levels. Here's Adi Tomer from the Brookings Institute to help us think about what happened in Flint. One of the examples we, we try to tell folks about is the Flint water crisis, right? Now, obviously, I mean, basically the worst avoidable, truly avoidable human tragedy in infrastructure in the last decade plus, if not longer. The fact you even say Flint, people know exactly what you're talking about now. As much as that was a water crisis, that was actually a, what we call a fiscal crisis, or basically Flint did not have enough money. So they used to buy cleaner water from the Detroit River because the Detroit River would not corrode the lead pipes in Flint's homes. Because they needed to cut their budget, they switched to the Flint River. The Flint River, due to decades of pollution and other reasons, had the materials in it that would corrode the lead pipes. When they made that switch, they knew what would happen. Criminal, legit criminal, like morally criminal and like legally criminal. But everyone was complicit, right? It was because the locality owned their both their water utility, but they also had responsibility for getting water to their people. And the state of Michigan knew this switch happened and didn't come in and help them, which is why the, why the governor and other parts of their team ended up having legal problems from it. So it's not just saying this in a vacuum, right? Like, oh, state, oh, my water pipes are local. Okay, great. Well, here's what happens, right? If you're all of a sudden, if your region adds a ton of jobs, right? Let's say like Amazon picked you, like Nashville, right? Like we're going to put a lot of jobs there. Well, you know, Tennessee is not necessarily going to come to save the day. Your local community has to figure out how to handle all those extra people on your roads and on your bus lines Mm -hmm. and riding scooter share, whatever it might be, right? It works in reverse too. When you're in a struggling community, all of a sudden, very difficult choices have to be made on how do we make sure that our roads don't have potholes, right? Or our drinking water is safe and clean. So it is a huge system with tons of different responsibilities. And it's why, you know, our investment needs look really different in different parts of the country. So we have these highly localized, disparate systems across the United States where critical infrastructure relies on purely local funding, even when, as Adi said, 
the locality has a lot of different factors to balance when nobody consults the infrastructure people before they mm-hmm. before they bring in an Amazon or another giant business. The result is that many of our systems are not being well maintained and modernized. We're not doing that maintenance that Dr. Tule Cordova talked about where we're changing our oil. We take for granted that these systems will work constantly, reliably, and safely without thinking about what that requires of us. And we don't prioritize it because it is expensive. And because our orientation so often is as consumers, we are thinking about our bills and the price point of our bills seems to be the barrier to updating these hugely expensive systems. But they all depend on us as ratepayers. There is a huge funding gap at a local level. There's a challenge to generate reliable revenues and affordable revenues to pay for these projects because ratepayers, individual households, individual businesses are the ones you get your water bill every month or or it's included in your rental payment, for example. Ratepayers are responsible for providing the revenues for these systems. And so uh, in many cases, the, the scale of our needs has gone up so much that our water bills have gone up quite a bit as well. And, and individual households and businesses aren't able to keep up with those payments in, in many cases. And so we're not necessarily able to stay ahead of, of our existing investment needs, let alone forward-looking investment projects that are needed in these cases. A lot of your towns are working really hard mm-hmm. to improve their system. And the bigger your rate base is, the better you can absorb those construction costs, the better you manage your operating costs, the more you can do capital without having to raise rates. But like in our town, in, in Paducah, Combined sewers, there's not anybody alive that made that decision. We have to deal with it. I don't blame the feds for wanting to to change how that's done, but you can't dig up every street in Paducah. I really like how John points out the strain on local management from our failure over time to consistently maintain and upgrade our systems. I think with any problem, the more you let it fester, the bigger the expense Mm -hmm. when you finally tackle it. And that's kind of where we are. The bill is coming due for several generations, and it's hitting all of us. And even though we have local utility and infrastructure crews that are experts at stretching dollars, at the end of the day, our rates are going to go up. I don't know the average across the country, but I do know the average in the in the state of Kentucky is around uh, $40 a month. What is an affordable water rate? You know, traditionally, EPA has a national guidance on this. Of It's, it's in terms of median household income. But you talk to a lot of utilities and, and customers, and they'll say, well, it's probably the median household is not the one facing the biggest problems here. It's probably the lower income households, right, that are that are facing these challenges. And so how are we beginning to measure affordability in light of those needs of where those lower income households are based? How are their uh, economic needs changing, not just during the current recession and the pandemic, but just ongoing? So as we talked about, when we delay tackling a problem, it only gets more expensive under normal conditions. Mm -hmm. And when we add shifting climate to the mix... What we have to pay for all forms of water structure soon might be orders of magnitude different from where we are today. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Traditionally, the advice would be pick one. But thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ugh, ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. 
problem. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. That's code PODCAST15. I hope you guys don't mind to time travel back with me about a year. I was in the process of resigning myself to the idea that part of middle age for me might mean that my hair was going to slowly turn to straw and fall out of my head. Drama aside, we all know that your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. I have tried other custom beauty products and just found that they kind of made my hair worse. But ever since I switched to a custom hair routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair, yes, but beyond that too. I feel like I don't have to blow dry my hair anymore in order for it to look good because it's stronger, fuller, softer, and just looks nicer. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. My custom shampoo and conditioner, for example, were formulated to improve the smoothness and volume of my hair. And I really see after months of using my custom formula and tweaking it with the review and refine tool for this season, that I have nice looking hair all year long. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So go get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. What we had seen last few years is our average rainfall in Paducah was 49 inches for a whole year. In 18 and 19, we hit that in June. You have a higher chance for a much higher intensity rainfall. And what I mean with that is a three or four inch rain. If you're going to have 40 inches in six months instead of 12 months, there's odds that it's going to, you know, it's going to rain three or four inches in one day. Then you also have higher groundwater conditions. And when your ground is saturated, where does that water want to go? It wants to leak into a pipe. Then you have more issues related to that. And it's not just a changing climate that puts pressure on the system. It's also natural disasters that can destroy water infrastructure. A weather emergency 
really quickly becomes a public health emergency when it comes to water. We saw that with drinking water supply in Texas, and we have the same issues for hurricanes, earthquakes, or wildfires. The federal government needs to come in and get those people where they're doing, where it's working. But I think a lot of it gets down to to what happened with us in the ice storm and evaluating what happens when an event happens and making the changes that you can make to prevent that from happening. And some of these towns are big enough that they're going to have money that they can work on. It's just never going to be, and you know this, there are no quick fixes in some of these businesses. There are not. There are some things that you can attack and you can finish quickly, but the most of this stuff are years-long process. And the only way to fix it is to start. So as we said earlier, we can manage the quality of the water that we have, but we cannot manage where water is. Mm-hmm. Over the next 50 years, experts think the United States might lose access to a full third of our freshwater supply. And this isn't just about future predictions. We can see a terrible, terrible drought in the West right now where water supply issues are front and center. That's why a lot of communities in the United States and around the world are talking about innovation. So a source of innovation that we have is water reclamation. We can use our sewer water and clean it and then drink it. This is not a technology issue. It is a marketing issue. The Big Thirst refers to this as the yuck factor. It is also a supply issue, how we move the water back upstream. So that's why so many restrictions on water usage when you're in those drought conditions focus on outdoor water usage. If we flush the toilet or we take a long, hot bath, we're using a lot of water, but that water can go right back into the system to be treated and used again. When we water the lawn, the water isn't lost to the whole of the universe, but it is lost to our municipality's control. It is lost to Mm -hmm. that immediate treatment and reuse within the water system. So we aren't losing water on Earth, but we are losing water in places where people live and where we need to match the water supply to the population. And that is a problem. Even water reclamation is not a one-size-fits-all solution. We need to recognize that there are no silver bullet solutions here, that many of these challenges have taken decades to manifest themselves in many ways. They, they Again, they vary so much across different places, and they vary so much for, for different people. They're very uneven, and how we measure and assess our needs needs to be I think, in terms of of the users of these systems, in terms of lower income households, for example, in terms of uh, communities of color, in terms of of our climate issues that, you know, as I like to say, our water policy is climate policy. It's not (laughs) just on its own dimension. If I'm Joe Biden and I'm looking from a national standpoint, I need to regulate the large bodies of water that I have. And that is, I need to work on that Gulf of Mexico and Oxford zone. I need to make sure the Ohio is somewhat clean and the Mississippi is somewhat clean, knowing that you're going to have other runoff. Then if you're a sewer district guy and you're a local town guy, our number one thing is to make sure flow goes from point A to point B and that we have enough capacity in our treatment plants to process that flow. So that way new businesses can move into our town and have capacity. You know, everybody talks about infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. There is no magic solution to any of this. 
I love that John points out there that even though he has to manage this locally, like everyone else at those 50,000 utilities across the country, he is significantly impacted by the decisions being made by his peers throughout the country. Mm -hmm. You cannot only manage water locally because it is all connected. And I think Dr. Tully Cordova does such a nice job of helping us think about the fact that we have to work together to solve these problems because water is essential to life. We do not have any alternatives. What I wish people understood is how important water is to our vitality, not just to humans, not just to our satisfactory lifestyle, but more so related to everyone, every living organism that is on the planet relies upon water. So if so many of our problems in the past have been because we treat water as consumers, as we move into more uncertain future, how do we start to think about water through the lens of citizenship? You know, we hope that one big important piece of this puzzle is better understanding how our utilities work. That's a good first step. Are you on a public or a private system? Is there a local governing board or is it managed by your city and county? Figuring out how your water utility works and your role to play in it instead of paying the bill and only looking at whether that number goes up or down, that's a really, really great way to begin to understand our water infrastructure. Your water infrastructure, the infrastructure that makes it possible to water to flow out of your tap. And thinking about the source for that water, not just who's managing it, but where is it coming from? Is it coming from a lake or what is the supply factor? It's also good to think about our own water usage. You know, we don't get to manage our water usage as closely as we manage other utilities. And there is thought about adding, you know, meters to show us every day in our house how Mm -hmm. much water we're using. But a key first step is just considering how much water you're using outside. Try to look at the cost in that beautiful lawn or the day spent under the sprinkler or the water that you put in your pool. Try to look at golf courses and understand how much water is being used there that cannot immediately go back into the local water system. Thinking about your usage encourages you to think about yourself as a user instead of just a ratepayer. Here is John again on how to be a good sewer user, a good sewer citizen. You can affect your own sewer rate. Sewer was only designed for toilet paper and water. That's it. And people think, well, if I throw my prescription medication down there, that it's Mm. going to get treated at the sewer plant. It's not. Read the mailers that are in your bill to understand what the issues may be. And then also understand that for the most part, you're always going to read about utilities that are struggling and that have a problem. But do you know how many thousands upon thousands of utilities are out there that are just working every day trying to do the very best that they can? And of course, being a good citizen is recognizing our connection to other citizens and our connection to each other and advocating for universal access to clean water, for advocating for equity in decision making, where the money goes matters. You know, we want to think about our water usage and our participation in the infrastructure as citizens, but money is a part of infrastructure. And so that aspect matters too. So a lot of places that that are seeing larger and growing populations, that are seeing increases in economic activity, that provides the certainty in terms of revenues for utilities to take on a lot of these projects. Of course, in these regions too, you have leadership that tends to be more imaginative, and that isn't necessarily a political thing. It's it's just 
they, because they have that extra capacity, <laughs> they have the extra wiggle room to try new things, to try new types of designs and new projects. I like to emphasize the, the economic foundations of the region as being directly tied to, well, how we invest in our infrastructure period. <laughs> Even though it is out of sight and out of mind for many of us, the reason that it can be better performing or more forward-looking is directly tied to, to how our region is doing economically. There's something called the Water and Tribes Initiative, and it's important movement to be able to advocate for the universal access for clean water in Indian country, to be able to be supportive of tribes, pueblos, and nations that are in the United States. I think remembering that focus on equity takes us back to just respecting water. Water is amazing. It's an incredible resource. It is the foundation of life. And the most fundamental thing that we can do is look at every other person who shares this planet with us and want them to have equal opportunities to access that water and make sure that we're willing to do whatever it takes to make that happen. Because I live in a, an area of the country that often experiences floods. You know, water is this thing that is dangerous when you have too little and dangerous when you have too much. The power of that is something that I always try to keep in mind when I think about water and I think about infrastructure is trying to harness that power for the good of all. That's a big lift. The paradox of that, the tension between not too much, not too little, and harnessing that power for everybody is something we're going to talk about a lot as we move through this infrastructure series, as we talk about power, literal energy, <laughs> as we talk about transportation, as we talk about broadband, that we are trying to come together as human beings to harness something that is bigger than ourselves for the good of everybody. So continue to join us as we explore infrastructure in real life. Infrastructure in Real Life was produced by Studio D Podcast Productions. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart is our community engagement manager. Special thanks to every expert who spoke to us for this series and our series contributors, Alyssa Maxwell, Monty Lawson, Courtney Verclair, and Jordan Bond. Braid Creative and Kathleen Shannon put together the very cool, groovy graphics for this series. You can purchase a companion book box for the series and join our extra credit book club through Wild Geese Bookshop. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Lodow. Lily McClure. David McWilliams. Jared Minson. Emily Neasley. The Hesitants! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Karen True, Amy Whited, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and follow us on Instagram at pantsuitpolitics. You can affect your own sewer rate. Flushable wipes are not flushable. <laughs>
They do flush. Lots of things flush. It just gets down to a point of how long does it take to degrade in the sewer. The sewer was only designed for toilet paper and water. That's it. That's it. 